Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Mel Eslin, a writer and producer who came up through the indie film movement in Seattle, working with Lynn Shelton on Hump Day, Your Sister's Sister, Touchy Feely, and Laggies, and producing The One I Love and Lamb, among others. She made her directorial debut last year with Biosphere, a post-apocalyptic comedy starring Mark Duplass and Sterling K. Brown as lifelong friends who are also the last two people on Earth. It premiered at TIFF 2022, and it's now playing in select cities in the U.S. and available for digital rental in North America. It's really something, and you should check it out. Mel picked The Catechism Cataclysm, a 2011 comedy written and directed by Todd Rohal, starring Steve Little and Robert Longstreet as Father Billy Smootster and Robbie Shoemaker, a misfit priest and the guy he worshipped in high school. A decade later, the two men embark on a canoe trip that'll lead someplace neither of them could have ever expected. Is it a comedy of errors? An absurdist parable? The karmic result of a guy dropping his Bible in a toilet? I won't tell you. This is someone else's movie. So I was looking at some of your past episodes being like, well, I would have done that movie. Well, I would have done that movie. And then I was like, what movie do I love that just like doesn't actually get the recognition I think it deserves? And I swear to God, the first film I thought of was Todd Rahal's The Catechism Cataclysm, which is... I now call Todd a friend and many people who worked on this are now close friends. But at the time, this movie just blew my mind at Sundance. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And it's just one of those films where I'm like, nobody seems like it's just so underappreciated. It has kind of fallen off the radar, hasn't it? It's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it's, hate to say that, but yes. <laughs> well, it's weird because. I mean, I dug out the old IFC Films DVD and I knew I still had it somewhere. And I was stunned to see that it actually has one of David Zellner's Sasquatch movies on it as a as a. Oh, my God. The Sasquatch Birth Journal 2? Is that what's on it? Yeah. Oh, best short ever, too. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, apparently there's a feature now. Um, Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for that. (laughs) It's it's about – well, that makes – but it retroactively makes this disc an artifact now that people are going to get excited about, which I think is weird and fun. Yeah. Um, and then they're going to discover the feature that is on it, which is, I remembered it being weird. I don't mm-hmm. think I remembered quite how weird it is. And I'll set this up in the um, in the intro so you don't have to go through the plot if you don't want to. But also, I don't know how sure. you would. Like, I don't know. I'm still not sure how I'm going to describe the plot. It's about a guy who goes on a canoe trip with a friend. Yeah. Well, I always tell people it's about a priest and a metalhead who go on a canoe trip. Okay. And I was like, that gets me right there. <laughs> you saw it with an audience. So how did that go? I like, did. What was the experience like? Yeah, I was, I was, it was my first Sundance and I was actually there because I had helped a friend out, Megan Griffiths on her film, The Off Hours. And The Off Hours and Catechism had the exact same crews largely. So everybody in math was there to celebrate and I didn't know Todd well, so I, but I went because all my friends were going. And I, if I recall, it opened before the film with Sasquatch Birth Journal 2 and then Catechism Cataclysm. And I just had my mind blown. I had the most fun. I was laughing. I just immediately was like, whoever made this movie and that short I want to be friends with, uh, I'm in. It just, <laughs> I, I can't explain. It, the weirdness is what got me. The The idea of being able to throw anything in you want and it excites you and it makes you laugh. And sometimes there's no reason. It's just, I think a joyous ride. That's a really good way to put it. 
it it struck me as part of we had this little mumblecore before mumblecore thing here where mm. people didn't know what to call it. It was like the new American indie. Um, yeah. And things like Frownland and um uh Nights and Weekends, this the forgotten Greta Gerwig, yep. Joe Swanberg movie, which is I think still kind of their masterpiece. Yeah. And then this is the second wave of that wave where people realized that actors were up for anything as well as filmmakers and you could go places and do things that didn't need to be a hundred percent, you know, gritty realism. Cause this is not yeah. that this is a film yeah. about um, unlikely connections, I think is one way I could sell it, but I'd forgotten that the second half is basically just no longer a friendship picture. Like it's a, it's a buddy yeah. movie right up until it's not. And then it just goes insane. Yeah. Which is kind of how I would describe my movie too, which I was realizing like, oh, there are weird similarities, but that's my favorite kind of movie is you think you're on one journey. It takes a detour. One minute you're laughing, then you're crying, then you're freaked out, then you're back to laughing. Uh, it's, and I would never in a million years have guessed that Todd would take the film where he takes it in the second half. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched it just last night to catch back up with it because it had been 10 years at least since I'd seen it. And it was like, oh, this is weirdly kind of like old joy. This feels like a response to what Kelly Reichardt was doing. And then right oh, up, yeah. like, the second you sink into that, nope, something completely different. And we can, yes. I mean, we can talk about it. It's a 10-year-old film if you want to get into any specific details. But Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, two young Japanese women who call themselves Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and a black man they call Jim uh, mm -hmm. show up and take over the film. They take over everything. And, yeah. And, and then things happen. It's, I mean, I feel comfortable spoiling it. Well, do we? Can you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the, the detour it takes is bonkers. And knowing Todd now in the way that I do, there's a lot of things that I have theories about what certain things mean, like the rockhead. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a lot of theories on what that is. But like the two Japanese tourists, the like techno music stuff, I'm like, I don't know what that is. And I just have this gut feeling that Todd had these images in his head that made him chuckle and he threw them in. Because I think that's so much of what he does. And I actually love it because sometimes it's just tonally something that he wants to add uh, that maybe there is no underlying meaning or you can put your own meaning to it, which I always appreciate in art. It does feel like the sort of thing too, that would resonate with the people who produced it, like David Gordon Green. And, and um, mm -hmm. I mean, embrace is the wrong word, but, but there is something that from that period in David Gordon Green's cinema too, like mm -hmm. he was just about to make your highness and, and he and Danny are just doing the thing that they do, which is find stuff that makes them laugh and throwing money at it. Yeah. Um, but that's the only way I can see their worlds connecting. And it's, yeah. I mean, it was, there was other like overlaps too, because obviously there's Steve Little um, and uh, the composer, Joseph Stevens, I believe does all those shows, you know, all of David Gordon Green's. And so there were all these like little connects and I forget what came first. Cause I've sent back every question I can about this movie to Todd. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 it was like, I feel like it was those guys taking a detour, but something, I think you're right. It felt sort of in their world. still. yeah. Like a couple of blocks over, you know, exactly. This, this might yeah, be yeah, going yeah. on. <laughs> yep. Go on so a side street. 
Well, I have to ask, because we never get this on the podcast. We never get somebody with actual insight into the, not insight, but actual connections to the filmmakers. It's always yeah. sort of sort of hearsay and third hand. So what, how, how did he feel? How, what did, what is Todd, how does Todd feel about it now? I mean, when was the last time you talked about it and, and what's the, what's the world that he wanted to build and, and how, how does he feel it was received properly? I mean. I mean, I, I will not speak for him and I will actually say I'm not entirely, I've never really asked him what he was going for in those terms per se. Um, and I don't know if he would tell me, uh, or if he would leave that up to my own imagination. Um, but I don't know. I, I was, I went back the other day and was like reading reviews, knowing I was going to talk about it and I got angry. Uh, <laughs> so I can only imagine how Todd felt because there was just some out there where I was like, you did not get this movie. This movie is gold. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. It's like Todd's one of those people who I feel like has never gotten the accolades or recognition he deserves. So I don't know. My hunch is he feels that way too, but in a, in a healthy way. It is such a strange proposition throwing a movie into the world. Um, yeah. You know, now more than ever, obviously, because there's so many different places it can go and get lost and um, never seen properly. There were a number of reviews that I saw, just going over them as well myself this week, where people said this is going to be a future cult classic. Which exactly. Thank Which God is, they recognize that. <laughs> yeah, but it's also like a weird way of dismissing it in the moment, right? Like it's not for mm -hmm. me right now, but in 10 years I might really enjoy this. Yeah. But but now watching it, yeah, I can see the seeds of so many other what's you know, like it was called cringe comedy. It isn't anymore. I don't know what it is now. It's like the comedy of anxiety, the comedy of yep. alienation and isolation. Steve Little is doing this, like this aria of missed connections for the yeah. entire film. Like he cannot understand anyone else and no one else can understand him. And yeah. somehow that becomes sympathetic instead of excruciating. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you have, there's such like tenderness underneath it that I think Todd is great at that where it's just like balls to the walls, insanity comedy. But if you peel it back, there's tenderness there. And it's really a movie about like, male bonding you know it's which i love and i think steve and robert longstreet also bring so much to that like there's this scene my one of my favorite scenes is there's a confessional scene in the bathroom where they're both shitting and he, you can hear it and steve's talking about how he's like never really been happy and he's touching the wall and having this tender moment uh and that's where i'm like Maybe Todd was a little bit ahead of his time with some of these things because it's he's doing a lot at once. Yeah, that uh, is your hand on the other side. No, yes. why would it be? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, the like lines I can quote in this movie. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. it, yeah. I hope it comes back. I hope this helps because <laughs> we'll I want everybody can. to see this and buy it on DVD. The DVD cover is so beautiful. <laughs> Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. This week, I'll be tackling the new wave of studio horror that just rolled onto disc, Renfield, Scream 6, and Evil Dead Rise. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out.
and the 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 aesthetic of it the, the cover but also the music choices the font that they've used like it's almost oh, deliberately yeah. off-putting you keep you keep trying to understand what it is they want to do and only i find like only in the second viewing looking back does it make total sense aesthetically but it yeah. works like it's it's like my favorite kind of cult film experience is like watching a transmission from another world where where yeah. this is the this is the mainstream yeah uh, be, because yeah. everything is simply accepted and that's a hard sell like that's really tricky to do edgar wright has this quote that i use all the time um the job you have is making sure everybody is pulling the rope with the same tension and mm-hmm. and attenuating it specifically from person to person from department to department until finally you get something that feels like a vision yes and this movie does have that like it feels it does point to point right like it feels like everybody gets it yeah which is what i find so beautiful about it i mean as somebody who loves metal music (laughs) that was also like a very quick way to my heart but just like the composition the like you said the font the like uh suddenly saturates a red slow zoom in like everybody who seemed to be involved in this film seemed to understand what they were going for uh and work towards that same direction and you know and i know that there are scenes that definitely they ad-libbed and improv and um i forget if there's a scene near the end which is also golden where it's Steve Little's character running up to somebody and basically proceeding to scream the entire plot of the movie at this person. And I think I asked, and I believe that was an improv moment where Steve just pulled everything that they had been shooting and happening and screamed it out loud. And I was like, he got it. Like in that moment, you're like, that is the core of this movie. That's the vibe. And he got it. It is amazing. Which is, you know, it's Todd. I can only imagine, because I wasn't on set, uh, but I can only imagine that with Todd really, you know, having that hand and directing everybody there. And knowing when to let people go, right? Because there's a lot of that. That's key. Yep. That is, that's total key. And, you know, and I know that they were shooting. I mean, you can see it like they're in canoes on a river half the time. So it's like how I can only imagine there's times where, I can't be up there with them in the canoe or, you know, with, I think it was Ben Gazalki who shot this film, who's also who shot nights and weekends. So there's also that full circle thing, but, um, but just, you know, allowing all the collaborators to have their space, I think makes such a, I think the best directors bring in the right collaborators and trust them. And then you get weird, strange, unclassifiable art (laughs) that people will puzzle over for decades to come. Yes, exactly. In a perfect world. (laughs) Yep. And also, I didn't want to let this go by, but I had, I either had forgotten or maybe we hadn't met yet, but Lynn is in it. Lynn Shelton has a tiny role. She's part of the, part of the church group. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, weird cameos, but yeah. So Lynn is part of the church group and her, um, her ex-husband, Kevin Seal, who was like in the second wave of MTV VJs back in the day, he's got a cameo. I, I love the, that cameo. It's just so nice to see her. I mean, it was, I, I, we can cut this if you want, if it's too weird or personal, but she was honestly one of my favorite people to talk to. And yeah, it still hurts. Um, but yeah, um, no, I, I'm there. It was, you know, everybody who worked on catechism 
because uh, I shot it in Washington State. So we were all a very small, very tight knit film community, um, which is like one of my biggest regrets is I was like one of the few people who was on a different film while they shot Catechism, <laughs> which is why I'm not a part of the crew. But I truly believe is why I'm able to be such a fan and like separate, you know, I'm, I'm separate from it. Um, but, you know, Lynn being in it was such an example of we'd all want to be a part of everything everybody did. Um, so I love that she gets to be immortalized in that film. Yeah. Well, and we can, uh, and also I noticed in the, in the credits that, uh, Mark Duplass was one of the contributors, one of the financers, uh, along with oh, a few yeah. other names that surprised me, but that does give us the lever in this tiny short episode to get to biosphere, which, yeah. um, which is your movie. And which is also about, as you say, two guys on a trip that never ends. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, the awkwardness of connecting with someone, I think it's fair to say, uh, in a way you've never connected before. And yep. honestly, the things that you have, the, the not the not the things that sounds like the the bits and the the gags, the emotions yeah. that you have Duplass and, and Sterling K. Brown play, and the way they are so generous with each other, really does feel like. I mean, it reaches back to a bunch of stuff that that Mark has done in the past, like Hump Day, obviously comes to mind. Where yeah. again, you're just stuck with somebody in the most awkward potential situation and, and trying not to talk about what you have to talk about. But here it's also the end of the world, maybe, and mm-hmm. a single location and all those other things. And yet there are moments where like Brown will do something with his eyes where he's swallowing a thought. I don't know yeah. that I've ever seen that before in a comedy, the way it, it plays here. And it's wonderful. And then and then there's all the other stuff. But yeah. what, I'm like, was the catechism uh, cataclysm on your mind when you? No, not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually hadn't thought about this movie in a bit until, you know, I was asked to do this podcast and wreck my brain for movies I love. Um, No, it wasn't at all on my radar, but I love now having watched it and trying to pull parallels and I see a bit, um, which I really appreciate. And I think some of that is what you were talking about, which is allowing people to to project and put themselves into it as well and, and giving the actor space. And, you know, what you said about Sterling was, was so true, like watching his face and watching how he navigated emotions and those turns within a scene were a big reason why there's a lot less cuts than you might expect in certain scenes because I wanted to, I didn't want to lose that, that process of his. I wanted people to be able to experience it. And, and it's also something I think just producing for so many years, I, I've seen, you know, what it does to cut and to cut quick. And I think because of my experience, I have a little bit more confidence in knowing you can hold a little bit longer and the audience will stay on board. And um, so uh, Sterling thankfully allowed me to do that as did Mark. I mean, if they're not already on board by the time you get to the comic payoffs, you there's nothing you can do, right? Like you've made the movie yes. you've made. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's um, it's the sort of, project too, where we were talking about this before we started recording, you want to protect it. Like as an audience member, Mm -hmm. I mean, I introduced one of the screenings last year, weirdly enough. And it's like, I can't, I don't, it's not that I can't tell people what's, what they're about to see. I can't, I don't want to, I want to jump on this thing and, and protect it and let people figure it out as it goes. And then subsequently it's been almost a year and 
people are being really careful about it. All you need I to know, know is that it's wild. two guys and this thing. Yeah, it is. I have not had this experience where press is so respectful of keeping spoilers. Uh, you know, since I, I produced this film, the one I love, like 10 plus years ago. Right. And that was the only other time I had an experience like that where everybody recognized how important a twist or a plot point was for the process and and was very respectful. And I think even with Biosphere, there's only been one review where somebody said, I might say something, but like, stop reading right now if you haven't seen this movie, which has been great because, you know, nowadays, I think so much of a conversation about a film happens before you see it. You've seen four trailers. People are making assumptions based on who's in it or a log line. And because we take there are some themes that I take with this film that are very unexpected and I think really important, but might be scary. Uh, I did want people to have that experience, that authentic experience where you go in knowing nothing and uh, bring to it what you personally want in that moment versus everything you've read about in other people's opinions. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it, watching it, you know, I, I used to be, I still kind of am, but I used to be like a full-time film critic and my policy was don't read the book. If there's a book, don't watch the trailers. If you can help it, I just want to see what the movie has to do. And I yeah. don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, I, the, the, the example I always use is the man from uncle trailer, putting the last shot of the film in the trailer. Now yeah. you don't know it's the last shot of the film, Yeah. but in the back of my mind, I'm waiting for those people to be at that totally. table in that moment. And so yep. it's like, well, nobody's going to get shot. Cause they're all in that. They're, the table hasn't shown up yet. I'm waiting for the table. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, yeah, forewarned is not forearmed in, in narrative, right? Like I want no. to be genuinely surprised and, and what you do, what you all do in biosphere is something that's like a, it's like a glorious discovery. It's, it's not a, like at no point is there a turn that feels like a turn. It just evolves mm. into this direction and it keeps telling you this story about these people in this place and how once we've established who they are and what the stakes are, how they deal with each new thing. And it feels, it doesn't feel like there's a twist. It just feels like there's a story. So I would yeah. naturally want to protect the story. And I think people are responding yeah. in the same way. Yeah, I know. And I've been so appreciative of that. And I truly actually don't, I don't think of it as a twist because I, I think of it as it's just one thing added on to the other. Because um, I hate to put it all in one moment, you know, in the film. I think it's a lot more than that um but yeah it's i mean listen the film comes out today and i don't know the general public is not gonna be as uh uh forgiving uh like they're they're coming uh with their opinions and i'm i'm expecting it all we can do is uh is prepare and yep. make sure they understand i will give nothing away uh either but and that was actually a perfect ending so we can go out on actually no sorry <laughs> That would have been a perfect ending, except that I usually end by asking people what, if anything, they did take from the film we've we've been discussing for their own work. So, I know it wasn't on your mind, but is, do you see it elsewhere in your in your work? Is it has it inspired something else? Yeah, I think. I mean, one, I think that movie is so funny, and something that I did in Biosphere that I think Todd did so well in Catechism is that if you're keeping people laughing. They can get on board for the weirdest things, for the things that make them super uncomfortable is comedy is just this like safe space, unifying space. Um, so I, I would say that was it. And then also just 
not being afraid of your weird ideas and having to explain them. You know, it's like, I think Todd makes what he wants to see and what amuses him. And I think that is what I did with Biospheres. I made a film that I wanted to see and I hope other people enjoy it, but I made myself happy making it. My thanks to Mel Eslin, whose new film, Biosphere, is now playing in theaters in the U.S. and on digital in North America. In Canada, you can find it on Apple TV and Prime Video. Thanks also to Sierra Slaughter. She knows what she did. You can find Mel on Twitter at Mel Eslin, all one word, and you can still find The Catechism Cataclysm on DVD from IFC and streaming on AMC+, the Roku channel, DirecTV, and Plex in the U.S., and it's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms in the U.S. and Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>